Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Uh, tweed jackets, uh, a pipe, uh, uh, like an, uh, whatever those hats are called the, that my dad always used to wear. Those, those I, I want to say old man hats, but, but young men wear them too. So you know the hats that I'm talking about. Um, I think of Sherlock Holmes. I think of somebody trying to solve a mystery. Or this will, if you're around my age group, um, I think of Scooby-Doo at the end of every episode where they rip the, the mask off the person. Oh, oh, it's Mr. Smith. I knew it. Um, well, when the Bible uses the word mystery, it doesn't use it in the way that we use it in English. So today we're going to see the word mystery in our passage and in the title, it's Mysteries Made Known. When the Bible uses it, it uses it in a little bit different context. It, it means something that was hidden that is now in plain sight or made available to all. So Paul's going to talk about the mystery of God's people, the mystery of the gospel it's no longer a mystery. It once was, let's say, clouded and shadowed, and now it is in plain sight for us to explore and to learn about. So that's why today I entitled this Mysteries Made Known. Kind of the big idea of this passage is we, the church, have been entrusted with the good news of Jesus, and we must teach it and proclaim it boldly. And we're going to see Paul's going to look at two main aspects of the mystery that has been hidden and now is revealed. And our first mystery we're going to look at is God is gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God is gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That once was not as clear in the Old Testament. There were hints of it, but it wasn't crystal clear like it is when Paul is writing or like it is to us as we look back through New Testament history. So look at verses 1 through 6. Just by way of reminder, Paul is in a prison cell as he's writing this letter. He says this, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, non-Jewish people, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I've written about briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ. What was once hidden, now in plain sight. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, now he's going to give us specific details, is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he's kind of centering in there, and we're going to get there in a moment. So his main focus in this section is that the what was once hidden is now made clear. And he's really thinking about what he mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2, that you had the Jewish people and you had the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. John Piper, I think, rightly um, 
interprets this as the nations. You could say all the non-Jewish people, all the nations, all the people groups in the world who were not God's chosen people. And so the, the mystery is God's taking the Jewish people and the nations and bringing them together as one people by faith in Jesus Christ. And he is marveling over the reality of this mystery. He has dedicated his Christian life to making this mystery known. He is in jail as he writes for this mystery because he is proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles, to the nations. And he is thrilled that God is gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Before we go too far, though, we got to ask ourselves, is verse 5 accurate? Is it actually true? Which seems like a funny question or maybe a, um, a thin ice kind of question to ask of the Bible. But is verse 5 actually true? Let's look at verse 5 again. We'll start at verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. That's the title for the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostle and prophets by the Spirit. And then the mystery is referring to the Gentiles. So the question is, is that true? Was it hidden in the Old Testament? Let me give you two two um, parts of the Old Testament to think about with this question. The first is when God spoke to Abraham and it's known as the Abrahamic covenant. He makes a promise to Abraham. And this is what he says in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Now listen to this. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So it's the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a promise and Abraham um, is, is the, let's say, the father of the Jewish nation. And so the, the primary um, fulfillment of that promise in the Old Testament is God is forming a people for himself, the Jewish people. But even in this promise, there's a blessing for people of all the earth, for the nations, for the Gentiles. And then we have, you can look at lots of places in the Bible, but in Psalm 117, it's a two-verse psalm. It says, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So the question, is verse 5 true? Verse 5 is true, but there have always been hints in the Old Testament that God's plans wasn't just for the Jewish people, his chosen people, but for the nations. And that's what the Apostle Paul, he, he is just captivated by this reality. And one of the reasons he's so captivated is because he was a Jewish Pharisee before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He devoted himself to, to Judaism. He devoted himself to the study of the Old Testament law. 
And to his surprise, Jesus appeared to him and saved him. And by revelation showed him it wasn't just the Jewish people that God had plans for, but it was for all people who would put their faith in Jesus Christ. And it blew the Apostle Paul away. It was really his singular focus of sharing this good news from the day he met Jesus on the road to Damascus till the day he went to be with Jesus. This radical inclusion. So probably all of us, or 99.9% of us, are not ethnic Jews. We are Gentiles. We are those who have been invited in. So we have been invited into God's family for the sole reason that Jesus made it possible. That's the only way we were invited in. And the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths, both in his writing and his preaching and his missionary journeys and all of his sufferings so that people can know how great this good news is. I want you to consider what would motivate a man. Not only was he a Pharisee, but he was, he was an up-and-coming star among the Pharisees. He was taught by one of the premier teachers of Judaism, and he was a rising star in his circles. And then he encountered Jesus, and he left it all. What would motivate somebody to do that? Listen to just a kind of a, a day in the life of the Apostle Paul. He writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, With far great labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. If we were to see the Apostle Paul and he would take his shirt off, we would see a scarred man who had been beaten many times just for preaching Jesus. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So they, they, they basically beat him so bad they'd take him to the point of death, but he wouldn't die. And then he'd get up, he'd go to the next town, and he'd preach Jesus again. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's where the Jewish people would throw rocks to kill you. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, the very ones he was seeking to reach with the gospel. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me, um, all my anxiety for all the churches. So there was the physical struggles. There was the pain that came with that. There was the emotional weight that weighed upon him. And it was heavy upon him. Why would he do that? Because it was so worth it for him to introduce people to Jesus, to give them the hope of who Jesus is and what he came to do. That should have an effect on us. If we know Jesus and we've experienced his undeserved love and mercy, if we believe what, what Dave taught at communion, that we are 
washed and cleansed. That should cause us to give our allegiance to the Lord, to, to lay down our, our gifts and talents and resources, whatever it is, Lord, we'll do whatever you call us to do. To go to our neighbors and tell them about Jesus, to serve our neighbors, to, to give to missions, to go um, in response to the call for missions. But it all begins not with the call to do or to go, but with an awareness that Jesus loves you. That Jesus died as your substitute. That Jesus removed all your guilt and shame. That what the Bible says in Zephaniah is true of you, that the Lord delights over you and sings over you because of what Jesus has done for you. See, when that soaks deep into our hearts and minds, then it's natural to want to respond like the Apostle Paul. There's nothing greater in the world than to tell people about this incredible love that we have experienced in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Verse 6, he's going to give some specifics about the mystery. This mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Let's go one at a time with these things. The Gentiles are co-heirs. They're not, there's not a hierarchy in God's family. If you come through Jesus, you're joint heirs. What, what Jesus has is yours. You're not a second-class member of the family. You're not a black sheep in the family. No matter who you are or what you've done or where you've come from, if you come through faith in Jesus, you're equals. You are an equal brother or sister. You are an equal child of God, adopted into God's family. Um, we have Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up, and probably most of us will, will go places for, for a dinner or for, to celebrate Thanksgiving, to celebrate Christmas. Uh, one of the things I really appreciate about my extended family that I grew up in is some of my family members, extended family members, had addiction issues. So it was really common for Christmas especially to have somebody, usually a, a guy, um, present with us who um, lived in a halfway house, had no family to, to celebrate Christmas with. And so he would just be welcomed into our extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, nephews, and that would happen year after year. And there wasn't a, you have to sit over here outside of the family. Um, no, it's you're invited in. And actually, last Thanksgiving, my brother-in-law and sister did the exact same thing in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So we, we had this incredible spread of food for Thanksgiving, and seated at the table is, was another um, younger man who was just struggling with addiction and trying to get help. And so he was, it was aunt, uncle, brother, sister, and, and this man um, treated as one of the family. Didn't have to wait till the end of the line. Didn't have to uh, sit at a separate chair or table. Just was part, brought in. And that's just a little glimpse, but that's how it is 
when people who were separate and far away and had no business in the people of God come to faith in Jesus and were, were brought in. You're given a, a seat at the table. What is Jesus's is yours. That's an incredible reality, and that reality caused the Apostle Paul to give his life, his life work to, to sharing that good news. Not only that, but listen to this. We're members of the same body. We're part of the same family. Jesus is the head, and we're his body. And we're partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So we are partakers of the Old Testament promises that were originally made for God's chosen people, the Jews. Everyone who believes in Jesus is part of those promises. You can stake your life on those promises. God will be faithful because you have been made part of the family of God, of the household of God. So in response to this, we as individual Christians and as a local church, we should want to make much of Jesus. We should want to support, like we heard last week when, when Andrew talked about what they are going to do in Colorado to, to care for refugees, to move there and really devote their life work to that. We, we want to get behind those things because God is a God who sent his son to save people throughout the world, the nations. And here's the wild thing. We get to be a part. If you participate in evangelism and discipleship, either through prayer, through giving, through going, through all of the above, you get to be a part of this incredible vision that we see in the Bible in Revelation Chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. This verse thrills me every time I read it. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. It's like a countless multitude. It's the, the fulfillment when God says in the Old Testament, look up at the, the stars in the sky and try to count them. So will your descendants be grab the grains of sand and start counting each grain of sand. So will your descendants be. So we get a clarity of that picture. There's a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. All tribes, peoples, and languages. This beautiful mosaic of people from all parts of God's earth coming together as one new people in Jesus. That's the mystery that was hidden, but now is revealed. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I mean, picture just people from every part of the world yelling, salvation belongs 
to our God who sits on the throne to King Jesus and to the Lamb who was slain for us. That's people who were enslaved to all kinds of sins, all kinds of philosophies, false religions, all kinds of vices, all kinds of lies of pursuits of what they thought would satisfy and didn't. From every part of the earth, God is gathering a people. One of the cool things about being in a university town is we have people from all over the world. Pray, ask the Lord for opportunities to get to know them, befriend them, care for them. Maybe there'll be a bridge to to introduce them to Jesus if they don't yet know him. But this vision should motivate us. If your world geography is not on par with Misha Sandin, which probably none of us have the same level, I know I don't, um, and you're not familiar with maybe lots of parts of the country or the world, and the different people groups that exist in different countries throughout the world, one thing to do is go to a website called Joshua Project, and you'll get to to, to see features on all these unreached people groups, these large populations that don't yet know Jesus Christ. And it will help you, and and it'll it'll show you um, how to pray for them, ways you can engage And it's just a great way to expand our understanding of what God is doing throughout the world. I'm taking a a missiology class right now, a missions class. And so every week, part of the homework assignment is to pray for an unreached people group. And every Tuesday, we have staff meetings here at the church. And so as part of my homework and bringing the staff into that, we just, I hand out the cards each week and then we pray for an unreached people group together as a staff. So it's just a a small part that we get to play in this picture that we see in the book of Revelation. We have no idea how time spent just asking the Lord for a group of boys and girls, teenagers, men and women in some remote part of our earth, asking the Lord to save and rescue and strengthen the believers that are seeking to preach the gospel and start churches and watch a church planning movement happen. We get to, we get to participate in that as joint heirs as we're praying for our future family to grow and to expand. And you can do the same thing. There are other sites like that, but Joshua Project is one that I find to be really helpful. Second point. The way God's going to do this, the way he's going to fulfill that vision in Revelation chapter 7, whether we like it or not, whether our experience has been good or bad, is going to be through the church. It's going to be through his church, the church universal and all its local expressions on every part of the planet. That's God's primary design. Jesus purchased the church with his blood. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the chief pastor of the church universal and church local or churches local. And so mystery number two is the church is the vessel 
through which the manifold wisdom of God must be made known or will be made known. Look at verses 7 and following. Of this gospel, of this good news, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So Paul became an apostle, completely undeserving, all because of God's grace. And he was effective, all because of God's power. Verse 8, to me, though, I am the least of all the saints. If you remember, or maybe you don't know, but the Apostle Paul was responsible for the persecution of Christians. He hunted Christians down. He actually, when he was young, he was there as Stephen um, was martyred for the faith. And it says Saul was approving of his death. He would remember these things when he's writing. And he marvels at the forgiveness of his sins and the grace that he received. To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Mystery number two, the church is a vessel through which the manifold wisdom of God must be made known or will be made known. One of the privileges that the Apostle Paul was able to do was to preach and teach the unsearchable riches of Christ. It doesn't mean um, riches that you can't find at all. It means they are so inexhaustible that you keep digging and digging and digging and discovering more things about what it means to know Jesus, what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be in the family of God, what it means to, to, to be a, a Christian when we leave this world and go into this wonderful presence of the Lord. It's unsearchable. Listen to this quote from John Stott. It's a little long, but just hang in there. This is talking about these unsearchable riches. What these riches are, we may judge from Paul's exposition of Ephesians 1 and 2. They are riches freely available because of the cross. So they weren't available, and now because of Jesus dying for us, they're available. They include resurrection from the death of sin. A new life that Paul writes about. Victorious enthronement with Christ in the heavenlies. Reconciliation with God. Incorporation with Jewish believers in his new society. The end of hostility and the beginning of peace. The end of hostility between a holy God and a sinful people. The end of hostility between people. Only through Jesus can real peace relationally with God and with others be made a reality. The end of hostility and the beginning of peace. Access to the Father through Christ and by the Spirit. Membership of His kingdom and household. Being an integral part of His dwelling place among men. 
And all of this is just only a foretaste of yet more riches to come, namely the riches of the glory of the inheritance which God will give all his people on that last day. So the riches of Jesus are unsearchable. So your relationship with Jesus most likely started by praying a prayer, calling out to him, Lord, I'll, I believe you died for me. Lord, I give you my life. I'll turn from everything that I've done and everything I've trusted in and put my faith solely in you. It starts there. But then it's this lifelong adventure of really coming to realize how awesome, how incredible, how amazing the person and work of Jesus is and how many benefits come with that. I mean, imagine this. If I said, I'm going to give you an unlimited credit card and, and you just got, this is your, your life and your job and here's your job, here's your assignment. I want you to start here, right here in Indiana, Pennsylvania and I want you to Go on an adventure where you're going to identify every bird, every species of bird, every kind of bird that exists in the entire world. couple rules. Can't use the internet. And you can't talk to other people about it. You've got to observe yourself. Unlimited credit card. You can eat wherever you want, do whatever you want. Um, when you hit a large body of water, you can get in a boat. Um, otherwise, you're just going to walk around. So that may be fun for like one of you. Most of you, it sounds terrible. But the point is, the amount of birds that God has made just in North America alone is massive. But, but it would be unsearchable to do that in every country and every continent where you're just taking pictures, you're writing in your books, and you're observing, you're looking, you're, you're enjoying. So you start here, your book's kind of filling up, and then you just travel north, and you travel south, and you travel east, and you travel west, and you spend your life learning more and more and more. And by the end, you have this massive amount of information and appreciation for the birds. Like I said, that might excite a few of you, but not many. But with Jesus, that, that's what this is. When you wake up in the morning or when you go to bed in the evening, if you open this book, it's, it's learning, it's discovering, it's digging for these unsearchable riches. Day after day, month after month, year after year. And you will never get to the end of it. You'll never get to the end of it. Jesus is inexhaustible. And it's a worthy endeavor. And so the Apostle Paul wants us to go in on that adventure, and then to bring others into that adventure as well. Not only that, look at verse 9. The church proclaims that the light of the world has come to those living in darkness. Verse 9 says, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. The church brings to light the hope of the world. If you've been looking at any internet stuff, social media, news, driving around town, seeing yard signs, obviously we are in another political season. We're going to approach it like we did the last political season. Um, be a responsible citizen, but don't put your hope in politics. 
do not put your hope in a, a person who's not Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the great reconciler. He's the one that's going to bring people from every political persuasion to unity in him alone. He's where we want to put our energy and our hope. Jesus said this about himself. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. Think of that, that passage we just looked at in Revelation where you have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That means there are people like us that were blind to Jesus, were spiritually lifeless, walking in darkness, and they encountered the light of the world. And that light has come, and we need to share that light. And we need to hope and make much of that light, way more than we make much of anything else in all the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. Not only that, the church proclaims God as maker and creator, and he's the divisor of the plan of salvation. Look at the second part of verse 9. is the plan of mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. God is the creator. It's his planet. He made us, and he sent his son out of love for rebellious people to rescue us. You know it this way. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God motivated with this radical love that is so incredible. Maybe you've never experienced it before. It's, it's this unconditional, shocking love for the world that rejects him, runs away from him. We saw a little bit ago that the Apostle Paul even suffered from the very Gentiles he was seeking to reach. Same thing for the Lord. The very people he loves mock him, run away from him, try to hide from him, slander his name, slander his word, and then he doesn't give up. I mean, I was like that before I met Jesus. I made fun of Christians. I made fun of the Bible. I mocked Jesus. And yet God, in his shocking love, kept pursuing. That's what he does. He is radically loving and gracious. And then he brings us all together from different backgrounds, different personalities, different upbringings, and he puts us together as one messy people that he loves dearly, that he loves to help and clean up. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, it's God's plan that through his people, through the church, universal and local, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it's an interesting um, phrase at the end there. It's not just that it'll be made known to humans on earth, 
but to the watching angels and demons, to the, uh, the spiritual authorities. They'll, they'll see that the hope of the world, the manifold wisdom of God, is going to be communicated and displayed through regular messy people that Jesus has scooped in and rescued and saved. And that includes you and I. That, that is an awesome, awesome news. So one application is don't give up on the church, the church universal and the church local. Churches are messy. If you've been a Christian for more than a day, you've probably been hurt by someone in a church, burnt by someone in a church, confused by someone in a church, disillusioned by someone in a church. Um, we, we have. I have. You have. But it's God's plan. Churches are messy. Do you know why they're messy? Because we're messy. I'm messy and you're messy. So you, you take a messy person and you put them with other messy people, you got more messy people. And it's in that messiness that Jesus, who is perfect, works and changes, transforms and rebuilds and restores and, and, and does amazing, amazing things through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's the church that displays the manifold wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is not like the wisdom of this world, no matter what culture you go to. Listen to how Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we, the church, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, the church displays the manifold wisdom of God, and that manifold wisdom centers around Jesus who he is, and what he's done. And that's the hope of the world. Not other things. There can be many good things. We're just not to put our hope in them. They, they don't help us with eternity. They don't help us know the living God. Only faith in Jesus does. And then Paul concludes this section by saying this. This whole thing, mystery hidden, now revealed, this, this was according to the eternal purpose, God's eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. We have boldness to approach the throne of grace because of Jesus. We have access. We should have confidence through faith in him. And then he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, now think about it from their, their lens. So this is the fledgling new churches that, that Paul's preached and they've come to life and they're, they're primarily not Jewish people, they're Gentiles. And their number one advocate is in jail. Their number one fan who's just so excited for what God is doing to the nations, to the Gentiles. He's in prison and he may be killed 
And he wants them to know, don't, don't worry about that. You don't have to be afraid of that. This is actually for your glory. This will strengthen you ultimately. So we don't have to fear when it looks like churches are on the losing end or Christians are on the losing end or even in their context, the Apostle Paul, the guy, is in jail and may be facing death. Why don't we have to fear those things? Because Jesus is the head of the church. The risen, exalted, sin and death conquering Jesus is our hope. He's, he's fully at work. He's gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and world events he works through. He's not afraid of any of them, any of the things you see on the news. That does not mean Jesus is not at work. He's at work. Listen to how Jesus says it. He was having a conversation with Peter, and this is what he says. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it you can be fully confident that Jesus is going to build his church, universal and local in all of its expressions. So let's end where we started. Mystery number one, God is gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Mystery number two, the church is the vessel through which the manifold wisdom of God must be made known. Let me pray and the band can come up. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, the hope of the world is not on the church's faithfulness, but it's on your faithfulness. And Lord, you are purifying a bride for yourself throughout the world. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in persecuted countries, in closed countries to the gospel. Lord, that you would strengthen them and you would bring revival and the gospel would spread in in some of the darkest corners of the world. And Lord, we pray for us that we would be salt and light in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, when we're out and about in just normal daily life. And we want to be used by you. And we just thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace and your love for us. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You guys can all stand.